Hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. I'm excited to... I'm excited for every episode. Uh, that's just... <laughs> that's just how it goes. Uh, this episode is interesting in that uh, I was thinking about preparation for this Esalen workshop that Rodney Waters and I are leading in February, February 27th through March 3rd, I think. And the topic of the conversation or the workshop is... Um, ecstatic experience, music, and Jung's Red Book. And Dr. Murray Stein and I shared a conversation years ago on episode 35, when it was just audio on the Sacred Speaks. And uh, it was a great conversation. We talked about the soul and minding the self, uh, one of his books. Um, he's been a leader in this field, has written countless books. And when I started thinking about the Red Book, I realized I wanted to chat with him about this particular book, uh, Jung's Libra Novus. And it's one of the most important books of my library. Uh, I'm very excited to, uh, to, to, to explore the book. I was excited to read it again, and it deepened my understanding. I mean, taking another pass at this book has been very thrilling. I highly recommend it. Um, so I want to introduce a couple of ideas here, things we've got going on um, at a couple of spots where I am, and uh, then introduce Dr. Stein. So, like I said, uh, check out our Eslin workshop. There is a link below in the show notes, and um, it's going to be a cool experience. We've got an experiential component, and the hope is to actually do work with active imagination, and we'll talk more about that in the interview, what that is, if you don't know. Um, so I'd like to tip the hat here to the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. Uh, this is a boutique integrative clinic, psychotherapy, acupuncture, and other modalities. This is a wellness center my wife and I created years ago. Check us out at thecenterforhas.com. Again, link below. Uh, also, just to connect with a meaningful place while we're talking about Jung's Red Book, uh, I want to give a shout out to the Jung Center in Houston. Check it out at younghouston.org. Link below. And while we're at it, the music for the podcast has always been from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. Uh, wait around till the end of the episode. You'll get to hear the full selection of the song Clouds. Uh, thanks, guys, for always letting me use that material. Um, so let me get to um, Murray's information. I want to read his bio and then um, talk a little bit about his work. Dr. Stein is a graduate of Yale University with a BA and an MDiv. The University of Chicago with a doctorate, a PhD, and the C.G. Jung Institute. He's got a diploma there. He's a founding member of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and the Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts. He's been the president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology from 2001 to 4, and the president of the International School of Analytical Psychology, Zurich, from 2008 to 2012. Um, as you'll learn, he is, um, I think, one of the most perfect people to talk about this book with. He referenced, uh, I only have two volumes, and you'll see how, what a flood that was. Um, he, he's got five volumes of, uh, with Thomas, Thomas Arnst, and there is Jung's Red Book for Our Time, Searching for Soul Under Postmodern Conditions. This is a, an anthology, and um, uh, Dr. Stein is, uh, along with Thomas Arnst, is, a, uh, is an editor on the volume. There are five of them. There are about 70 essays on Jung's Red Book, so Look that up. Also, there are a couple links below with uh, some lectures that uh, have uh, Dr. Stein's been involved in, um, in in bringing together people to talk about the Red Book. So it was more than a. I feel very affirmed in my idea to connect with Murray. Thank you, Murray, for your time and for your willingness to connect in this way. Um, again, check out the Esalen class. Um, please send it around. Let people know about it. And regarding the podcast, check it out at thesacredspeaks.com. And please like, share, and subscribe. Uh, this project is growing and growing, and I need your help. So please click the subscribe button, send it along to people that you think would enjoy these conversations. And for now, we'll leave it there with enormous gratitude for uh, tuning in. Thank you. Murray, really awesome. Thank you. Thank you for being spontaneous. Thank you for engaging in this conversation. Dr. Murray Stein, as I look at your bio and your history and what you currently do, 
you represent a collision of all kinds of different value systems that I, I'm curious about. I'm looking at your, your bachelor's, your, um, your MDiv, uh, your, your work in psychology and religion, your doctorate at, uh, in Chicago, and then in Jungian analytic training. And then, of course, you've written extensively on the Red Book. I know you've been thinking about this a lot. So I, I know we want to get into some of uh, these books of yours. Um, mm-hmm. The anthology that you and uh, Thomas aren't uh, are working on. I'm assuming a third volume will be out soon. But also talk about this, the Red Book. Um, I I sent this you know curious uh, fishing line out to you because I'm leading uh, along with Rodney Waters. I'm leading. We're leading a workshop at Eslin on ecstatic experience, music, and Jung's Red Book. And when I started contemplating the Red Book, I immediately thought of you. We've shared one conversation before in the podcast, and now we get an opportunity for the second. So I'd, if we could begin, I'd really like to explore what this book means to you now, how you relate to it, what, what you think about it, what you've learned about it, just anything that you can start free associating about, and we'll see where we go. Well, I continue learning from it, and in preparation for our conversation today, I was reading some passages that were suggested by your by your questions and your comments. And um, I'm always turning up something that surprises me. Uh, it's an amazing text. Yeah. Um, and um, and Sonu Shamdasani's footnotes, uh, if you follow those and uh, yeah, do. down the tracks that they lead you, uh, you uncover so much about Jung's thinking that um, is there and latent, but you hadn't really paid so much attention to. So I want to thank you for, for your... <laughs> prodding. <laughs> and, um, it did put me on to this connection uh, to the, um, you know, to the Orphic mysteries that uh, I'd looked at before, but I, oh, I have a few things to say about that. Uh, but first, I'd just like to say that um, since the Red, uh, Red Book was published in 2009, it's been um, kind of a constant companion, I would say. Mm. It has remained on my desk. I usually I'm working with this version of it, the reader's uh, edition, uh, because the red book itself, the big one, is so <laughs> large, cumbersome, and difficult to, to use. But um, if it comes to looking at paintings and so on, of course, it's essential. Yeah. Um, and 2009, I guess it was in October, November, the book was published. And I uh, spent the uh, Christmas holidays that year from uh, 2009 to 10, um, reading it. Um, and I got a German version as well. Um, I read German pretty well and um, went back and forth between the English and the German. I must say I prefer the German. Uh, original language is always better than the translation, <laughs> but the translation isn't bad. Yeah. There are a number of errors, there always are. Um, but um, And then I did a couple of... Um, programs with the Asheville Young Center, I think 2010 and 11, on the Red Book, and I was very excited about it at that time. And then my interest cooled off a little bit. There were conferences every now and then. I wrote a paper or two. And then um, in 2016, Thomas Arzt introduced himself to me at a class at ISAP where I teach. And um, uh, Thomas Arzt was uh, a German physicist, PhD in in quantum physics, spent time at Princeton, uh, and had um, discovered there wasn't so much in physics for him. So he looked for other resources, and he discovered a Jungian analyst in the Black Forest in Germany, Um, uh, um, a woman who had been a student of Mary Louise von Franz, and he worked with her, and that really changed his life. Uh, and he became very interested in Jungian analysis and working with um, with the unconscious and with dreams and active imagination. And he was on fire about the Red Book uh, when he we had lunch in 2016 um, at a very nice restaurant in Zurich, um, and. Uh, he proposed that we uh, set up a series of um, courses and seminars and workshops on the Red Book at at ISAP, which is an international school for analytical psychology 
really a training program for Jungian analysts in Zurich. I'm, I'm a, a training analyst there and a teacher. Uh, and at first I was sort of um, uh, skeptical about this because by 2016, a lot had been written about the Red Book, uh, published and a lot of conferences and seminars. And I thought, is there really anything more to uh, say about this? But I went along with his enthusiasm. He was very infectious, very convincing. And so we did that and um, did a program at ISAP. And then he came up with the idea of collecting papers by prominent Jungian analysts and scholars on the Red Book and publishing them in a series. And uh, I said, are you kidding? A series? How many do you think we can get? He said, well, we just leave it open-ended. We'll just keep going as long as it goes. So we started with the first volume that was published in 17, I think, and then another one in 18. I think you have those two there. Mm -hmm. Published four uh, with 70 authors, seven zero authors. I'm missing and, three uh, and four. Is that right? Um, uh, there are four. There's now a fifth volume. I'll, I'll oh, tell you the story of I'm that. way behind, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he wanted to just leave it open-ended, keep going till you yeah. know, it peters out. But um, I was astonished at the at the amount of interest out there in the, in the Jungian field. And yeah. the essays that we collected are all first-rate, first really wonderful, classic wow. pieces. All of them different, very diverse taking Jung's Red Book from this angle, that angle. We called it Jung's Red Book for our time, searching for soul under postmodern conditions. And um, Thomas um, was a, um, a um, something of a, a Naturphilosoph, if you know what that is in German, a, na uh, a philosopher. I, they call them nature philosophers. In other words, they... They take off from the natural world and speculate about the cosmos and about uh, philosophical issues and so on. It's called Natur Philosophy. And he had edited a number of books in that field and was an expert. And he thought about postmodern, the postmodern period as mm -hmm. being um, very much a part of the beginning of a transition from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius. And it's a it's a time of uh, of confusion, of uncertainty, of a lot of chaos, as transitions always are. It's a period of liminality, and so in the first volume that you've got there, volume one of Jung's Red Book for Our Time, he laid out his view of postmodernity, uh, what it is, what it needs, and how Jung's Red Book. Uh, is a response or can be a response to the important questions of our time, these questions of uncertainty. So we started thinking, how can the Red Book answer questions that are arising 100 years after Jung created it? Uh, so it's a hermeneutic uh, uh, enterprise. Um, these essays are taking something written uh, a good while ago and applying them to our time today, as well as being uh, in their own right, scholarly and uh, very detailed um, uh, analyses of various aspects of the Red Book. And then we were planning a, a conference um, to celebrate all of this at Eranos. And uh, we called it the Eranos Symposium, Red, Jung's Red Book for Our Time. And that was scheduled to take place in... Um, late April 2020. Well, guess what? <laughs> COVID hit. COVID hit and we had to postpone the conference. And um, Thomas uh, became infected with COVID. He was one of the early, the earliest I knew who had gotten it. Um, and he was in his home in, uh, in Germany and I had a conversation with him. He looked very tired and a little bit of brain fog. He was an extremely intelligent man and hard driving, that German nonstop passion for things. Um, and uh, But he really looked pretty down and pale. 
And then I got a message from his wife uh, a couple of weeks later that he'd been taken to the hospital. And the doctor said, well, you have COVID, but that isn't your worst problem. You have a heart condition. So they rushed him to a hospital and did open heart surgery and uh, did a couple of bypasses, I think. And he was recovering from that when he had a massive stroke and that killed him. And that was on Easter Sunday, 2020. So he never lived to see this Aranos Symposium, which did take place this year, uh, last year in 2022 just two years later than it had originally been scheduled. And we had 18 speakers, all of whom had contributed earlier papers to the series. Um, and that's just been published. I received my copy on Christmas Eve day, uh, this uh, in 22. Uh, and um, those are also outstanding papers, and that's the fifth in the series. So the series will come to an end with that volume. And it's dedicated to the memory of Thomas Arch, who wasn't at the conference um, um, in in the flesh, but we all felt that his spirit was very much mm -hmm. there. And um, it was a, really a marvelous um, um, gathering of people who hadn't been at a conference in two years. And there was a, such a specialness to it coming together for the first time from various parts of the world. Um, and at this lovely place in Escona, on the mountain Monte Verita, which is um, a um, um, international uh, treasure um, owned by the ETH, the University in Zurich, um, and so we had a we had a marvelous time. And those uh, lectures can be viewed on YouTube if you Google Aranos um, on YouTube Aranos Symposium 2022. Um, the uh, 18 lectures have been put up on YouTube. You can watch them there. Yeah, look look below. I'll include a link for that, Murray, okay. in, the, in the liner notes. So that's, uh, um, I would say that that um, my interest caught fire again from Thomas. Oh, between like between uh, my earliest interest when it was published and the time of Thomas's arrival, a group of us at ISAP um, staged a performance called uh, Seven Scenes from the Red Book. Um, and we picked seven uh, important scenes um, where Jung is confronting Elijah and Salome and Isdabar and Philemon and so on, put them on stage, and we performed that um, really around the world. We, we did a performance in St. Petersburg. We did one in Taipei, we did one in uh, in um, Qingdao, China, where Richard Wilhelm had been a missionary, and of course in Zurich. Um, uh, we never did create a very good film of it. We, we had a kind of amateur film made. It's not too great, but I think it's, maybe you can watch it at, uh, at the, um, if you, Chiron, I think Chiron Publications mm -hmm. put it on there. Uh, website, or I think there's some access to it. Um, but anyway, that was uh, a great experience. And when we were in China, I'll never forget um, in Qingdao, it's where the famous beer comes from. Let's say uh, it was a German um, enclave. The Germans before the First World War uh, had a co were co uh, in the colonial business, and they uh, their colonial uh, China office was located in Qingdao, and the old part of Qingdao looks like a German town, you know, the buildings and so on, church structures. And we went there, and there were about five or 600 people in the audience, huge hall, and uh, <clears throat> they had translated the text into Chinese, which was projected onto a screen. And so while the performers did their... Um, uh, did the play in English, in the English translation, as we had learned it, memorized, and so on, uh, they could read it in Chinese. And afterwards, in the um, comments, uh, the comments we received in the Q&A, a number of them said, we had no idea how much Jung suffered, and they were in tears. Hmm. It seen Jung as this 
scholarly, intellectual, but that he had suffered. And that's what you get in the Red Book. You get Jung suffering. He suffers throughout the whole uh, work. Um, this is not a a, a journey, uh, you know, into the heavens with uh, with the angels. It's a journey to hell um, and down into the underworld. That's the Orphic journey of Basis, yeah. you know, descending into the underworld and coming out again. And what he saw and experienced there was hair-raising. Uh, and uh, he told his students afterwards there were times he would have to stop and, and do some some um, breathing exercises to regain his composure. He, he was sweating, he said, sweating blood. And you do get that feeling. It's not pleasant to read it. The first time I read the Red Book, I was really quite put off. It's grueling. It's hard. It's uh, it's not like reading a nice novel or you know mm. a, a travel book or something. It is really tough going, and you have to think a lot as you go through it. Um, you have to know a lot to appreciate it. Uh, and that's where Sonu's um, footnotes come in so uh, they're precious. They, um, they really give you a lot of background and uh, connections to other parts of Jung's life and writings. And now the Black Books are also published, and the Black Books are the basis for the Red Book. They're Jung's journals that he used to create a manuscript for the Red Book. Um, and so now we have the Black Books, but um, uh, and we can look things up, and that gives us a lot more information about what's going on. Um, but Sonu's footnotes are, um, are really uh, extraordinary. I think there are a thousand of them or so, and some are very lengthy and um, interesting and he pulls together a lot of material, very fine scholarship. Well, it goes, I'm, I'm just paying attention to the way this conversation is starting. And what's fascinating is you're, you're talking about all of these um, magnetic attractions, you know, erotic attractions that happen to this book. And then it, it, in, it, it incarnates a sense of creativity. And so all these different people are saying, oh, let me take a swing at this. And what, what is this thing? And I've, uh, Rodney and I wrote an album about it. And I'm, I've read this book probably five times. You know, it, 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 It's a fascinating question about what this is, because we're talking about, to your uh, conference point, that I never knew he suffered. This is the core question of, that happens in the Castle of the Forest when... She says, feel, feel this and, and feel what goes on underneath. This is not some just map that we need to identify, and then we'll locate ourselves within the map. It's an encounter with something overwhelming and terrifying. And, yeah. and I think we're thirsty for that because there's such a... I mean, we, don't, we don't have the underworld journey that's been sanitized away. And, and he, didn't, he didn't have it either. He had to make it for himself. <laughs> What the what the Red Book has done for the Jungian field, <clears throat> and I'm very much a part of that and have been since the uh, 1970s when I, early 70s, uh, trained at the Jung Institute in Zurich. Uh, so it's 50 years now. Um, what it's done is reactivated the practice of active imagination, mm -hmm. which had That's interesting. more or less yeah. fallen by the wayside in the meantime. So many other um, influences came into our field of analytical psychology from various different sources. And there's so much in Jung, uh, the collected works which were being published in the 60s and 70s, um, that took a long time to digest. And what fell by the wayside um, in the practice of Jungian analysis was the use of active imagination. And now, with the publication of the Red Book, you see that active imagination is the key mm. to the individuation process. As I've said to students at ISAP, you can go quite a ways in individuation, but if you want to go the full distance, as Jung describes it, you can't do it without doing active imagination. That is the key method. 
Okay, uh, this is a, this is good. Uh, sorry, because I want to take this thread because this is really important. You, let me. Can I translate? Because I, I think what you're saying, and what I hear at least in what you're saying, is that there's a praxis that begins that 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 involves standing aside of oneself. This ecstatic practice. So, uh, a practice that has long been based in a religious tradition is coming into this personal um, orientation where you can be confronted with others, you know, other parts of yourself. And sure. this gets at something I was, I'm, I'm really interested in is what is the problem of our times that, that these images, whether it's this practice of psychedelics that Jung even mentions at the, or Sanu mentions it at the beginning. It's on the page like 27 of the introduction. And he says from the, um, it was the transcripts from the, that, that uh, Aniela, right. is that right? Yeah, Aniela Yaffe, the protocols. Where, where, where he says, um, the practice of active imagination is, is, you allow the unconscious to express itself in the same way that one would do under the influence of mescaline. You know, he's, he's noting this, there's, there's an overwhelming experience where you're no longer in charge and you're no longer kind of driving the ship. You're in the world of non-directed thinking and you're being encountered by these various parts of yourself. And, and that, to me, is coming online all over the place. And certainly Jung's Red Book is an indicator that we as a culture are, are, are needing the return of this inner landscape. Is that fair to say, or would you like to push up against it? Well, um, I can agree with what you say, but there's more. Um, yeah. You know, Jung's journey in the Red Book uh, is... Um, um, what we get in the Red Book is not just the story of Jung observing something. It's the story of Jung changing. Jung says that when you get a big dream, for example, or an important symbol comes to you, whether it comes from mescaline or it comes from active imagination or it comes in a dream, hmm. it brings with it an ethical obligation. And he said the reason he isn't very keen on using a lot of drug activators, you know, mescaline was the word he used, sure. although he knew about LSD, which was invented in Switzerland. Um, and now we have psilocybin and mushrooms and all that, um, ayahuasca. Um, he said the the reason he doesn't recommend that is that people are going to get overwhelmed with it or they'll get addicted to it and they just want to have one after another experience. But each one brings with it an ethical obligation. And if you take your vision seriously, it's going to take you a lot of energy to put that to work. <laughs> so um, what he got in the Red Book was the task for the rest of his life. It took him 40 years to, to uh, fully, um, you could say, uh, um, actualize and um, uh, bring into uh, his life, uh, his lived life and his intellectual life, um, the teachings that he got in the Red Book and the symbols that he got in the Red Book. So it's, if you want to... Um, take Jung seriously, you have to take the unconscious seriously. And it isn't something just to have a nice experience or have a big symbol. And isn't it wonderful? Now my meaning, life has meaning. No. The symbol will give your life meaning if you use it. But you can go to a, a Christian revival meeting and have a vision of Christ and be baptized. And two days later, you're back to your old life. Yeah. You know, Or it can change your life like it did Paul's. Paul went out into the desert for three years after his vision to absorb it and digest it. And then he came and he was an apostle. This doesn't just happen to you. You have the symbol, you have the vision, you have the experience, and then what? Yes. Work begins. <laughs> so these people who are, you know, throwing down uh, psilocybin in order to get rid of their anxiety, uh, Maybe it does that. It has a nice, you know, benefit to old people who suffer from chronic, uh, chronic anxiety and depression. It kind of gets them over that, and then they can be happy again. 
Well, that's a, that's a medical benefit, but that isn't what Jung has in mind uh, with the experience of the unconscious. It's a whole different game. Well, it does seem to me that because, because you hear these themes all the time, like what's the problem of our culture and what's the, I think Kingsley at one point notes the, the Western cult of individualism and Jung writes often about the, how these misnomers around individuation and individualism, yeah. we're, we're awash with individualism and collective innovation. We're awash with technology. egotism. That's egotism. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, so couldn't, couldn't we say that on some level, because that's the spell that entrances us, this egoism, that there's something so enormous that needs to captivate us that it can come in the form of a overwhelming event? We just don't have the religious practices of incubation any longer, and Lord knows I'm looking. Uh, well, you know, those religious practices of incubation changed people. Um, Jung goes through... Um, in, in the Red Book, he goes through, uh, you could say, um, um, a mystery initiation. Yeah. Yes. An initiation into the mysteries of the unconscious. That's what he learned. And then he tells his students, uh, you know, this, uh, this changed my life. This changed my way of thinking. This changed my way of working. Uh, changed my way of living. So when you have the experience... It's wonderful, but it's the beginning. So in a, the Red Book is the beginning of Jung. Before the Red Book, Jung was a Freudian. After the Red Book, he was a Jungian. Jung became a Jungian during, through this experience. <laughs> what we know as Jungianism comes about because he had this experience. Now, what uh, Kingsley writes about is, you know, um, in the ancient world, a pre Socratic philosophy, um, the, um, the physician and the prophet were one. There was no distinction between science and, uh, and mm -hmm. mystical vision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pythagoras was a scientist and he was a mystic. Now, what you have now is a division. You either have scientists or you have mystics or the secular person. And what you talk about is what, what is our time, uh, what is the need of our time and the desperate need is that if you're a scientist, you live in the intellect. Uh, if you're a secularist, maybe you live in politics or you live in your hobbies or, um, mm -hmm. you know, whatever uh, gives your life meaning in the small m sense of meaning. But what is lacking in both areas uh, is what Jung would call soul. There is no soul. Modern man in search of his soul. That's a, one of his most famous titles. And what is the soul? Yeah. It isn't just your subjectivity. It isn't just your feelings. Uh, you know, people think, oh, if I go into therapy and get in touch with my feelings, then I'll have soul. Then I'll know what I feel, what I want. All of that is beneficial. And thank God for psychotherapy. But that isn't soul. Soul comes to you from the unconscious. Soul is Salome, in the, uh, or the figure called soul, here. And she's autonomous, and she teaches you. She doesn't tell Jung what to feel or how to feel. She has her own mind, and Jung has to pay attention to her. And she's not easy. She's demanding. Um, and she changes. So, you know, his, his ideas expressed much later if you work with the unconscious, not only does your consciousness change, but your unconscious changes. Well, he got that from his experience mm -hmm. with Salome. She was blind, and when he suffered on the, on the cross, uh, she received her sight. She got vision. So if the anima is blind, you're rudderless. Uh, your soul is blind. Uh, what does that mean? It means, you know, you're... Uh, you don't know what to take hold of. You don't know if you should go in this direction or that. You consult your whimsical feelings. They change every minute. You don't have a vocation. You don't have a direction. The soul will give you a direction, but she has to see and she has to be able to talk to you. And so this conversation that he has with, uh, with soul and, and then with Philemon, he learns from Philemon what is magic. 
And then he goes to Philemon the Magician. That's one of the scenes we did in the play. And Philemon plays with him, uh, doesn't want to tell him, but Philemon is a magician. And uh, his disguise as Philemon is revealed in the last scene of Scrutinies, where um, uh, Christ is in the garden, and he looks at Philemon and he says, oh, you're Simon Magus, the old magician. Simon Magus is a biblical figure, you know, in, in the book of Acts, you can read about him. Um, and he tried to, um, he came to the apostles because he wanted the secret and he said he would pay for it. How can you heal people? You know, you've got something called the Holy Spirit. I see you can heal people. You can speak another language. I'm going to pay you. Tell me that secret so I can do it too. They threw him out. Um, and he went off to Egypt and founded a Gnostic sect. <laughs> so that's Philemon. But he has magic. And uh, what he teaches Jung is that in order to do magic, you have to give up your thinking. Now, Jung is a committed thinking type. He's a scientist. He's a medical doctor. He's a researcher. If you read his early writings, it's all thinking. Mm -hmm. After the Red Book, it isn't all thinking. He's still thinking, but there's something else to it. It's what von Franz said, Jung's writings have a double bottom. There's a rational and there's a non-rational. And that's why he's kind of hard to read for many people, because he jumps around, he associates. And if you stick with it long enough, you start seeing it isn't just the surface meaning. There's something else going on underneath. And that double le level is what he brings out of the Red Book. You have a rational, conscious level, and then there's another level that's playing along with it. And that other level gives it depth. That's why it's called depth psychology. And when you go to the university and study psychology, you just get the one level. Yeah, you get the rational yeah. level. You get the experiments. It's valuable. You learn a lot about how the human brain works and how perception works and memory works. Um, it's not useful, useless information, but it's not deep. Depth psychology has this other dimension. The unconscious is involved in it. It's symbolic. <laughs> so this reminds me of uh, of something that, and I included this in our email when I was kind of free associating for these, this conversation. Jeff Kripal said something to me a long time ago that writing is performative, and that's something that has become abundantly clear for me when reading a book like The Red Book, when Jung says something like, go write your own, <laughs> stop, stop imitating, because there's a lot of this idea of the imitatio Christi and what the line is around that. But one of the, I think that double layer, which is just occurring to me, thank you for delineating this, is that he is in a process of discovery. It's not regurgitating information to communicate. I mean, if That's my right. intention is to say, hi, I've learned all this shit, and I'm going to throw it over to you, and you can take it in now, versus I'm going to expose to you a confrontation and a collision of my inner experiences that are somewhat allegorized in this dramatic form that will that will encounter you and therefore tap into your capacity to do that. And so you might experience some weird feelings when you're... Yeah. That's, that's the book to me, is that I, that other layer is, is so refreshing, quite frankly. That's what uh, students discover at ISAP. They come and uh, they get immersed in this program. It's a full immersion residential program. And so you're you're in it for a period of uh, years, and they start dreaming about alchemy. Yeah. You know, they, th they think, oh, it's because I'm reading alchemy. No, the unconscious is alchemical. That's what Jung discovered in his alchemy studies, which comes after the Red Book. Uh, the alchemists were engaged in active imagination, and they were allowing the unconscious to show itself mm -hmm. in, their, in their fantasies, in their projections. The unconscious showed itself and showed what it is doing. It's going through a transformation. It's separating and it's uniting and it's going through stages. And so Jung studied that and he said, my goodness, uh, what they're showing us in alchemy is what I experienced in the Red Book. This is a process mm -hmm. of transformation going on in the unconscious. And when students come and start reading Jung and hearing the lectures and so on, they get a cer certain surface level, but something else starts going on inside them. And that comes out then in their dreams because they're also in analysis at the same time. And so uh, 
You know, it's a process in which the student gets the information that's contained in the writings and lectures and all that, but it activates a process or it mm -hmm. opens them to a process that's their own. And you won't dream Jung's dreams, you won't have Jung's active imagination, you will have yours. That that's his message. You have make your own red book, he says. Yes. Um, and that's what Thomas Arzt, actually, there was a, a friend of Thomas Arzt in Germany who was a craftsman, and he made a number of red books exactly to the size, measurement, and qua quality and everything uh, of Jung's red book. Jung, Jung had it designed and made for him by a um a book bookmaker, uh, not a bookmaker, but a, um, the people who, who make the physical books in Zurich. And he told them what he wanted, and they made it for him. And that became the red book that he inscribed his calligraphic yeah. script into. So Thomas Hart had this friend who made it for him, and he was, at the end of his life, he was taking his dreams and uh, creating a transcript and starting to write his own red book. Well, he was that is a suggestion that Jung makes. It is a kind of imitation, uh, but it's but the material is yours. It's not his. Mm -hmm. You aren't mm -hmm. rewriting his uh, material, but you're making your own. And uh, I think Lionel Corbett, uh, um, he was a student in Chicago. I know him well. He lives in California now. He's a professor at Pacifica, has written a couple of books on Jung and spirituality, and it's very much along that line. You create your own private religion, so to speak, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Um, from your active imagination and dreams. It's what Wolfgang Pauli did. And Wolfgang Pauli came to Jung as a young man, very confused and a mess, brilliant, uh, cognitively, but emotionally a total mess, and went into analysis with a, a student of Jung's and then worked with Jung and started recording his dreams and active imagination, turned his life completely around. And his dreams now, somebody told me they're like 30 or 40 volumes um, in the archives in Geneva, and um, they're being prepared for publication. Jung selected like 100 uh, of the, the, the early ones, and he wrote a commentary on them. That's part two of volume 12 in the collected work, Psychology and Alchemy. Those are Wolfgang Pauli's dreams and active imagination. And Jung takes the symbols and shows what the unconscious is doing, where it's going. And this was a preparation for Pauli's um, individuation process. So um, as I said, what the Red Book has done is bring the importance of active imagination for individuation back into the practice of Jungian analysis in a way that uh, it couldn't have been done otherwise. Everybody who worked with Jung after the Red Book experience, uh, did active imagination. They all did it. Explain that. How? Because I know that people are like, how do you do that? What is that, Eve? Like, <laughs> what is that? Red Book, you'll see how you do it. Uh, <laughs> Jung shows you exactly how you do it. You sit yeah. quietly and wait. That's First right. step is clear your mind, open it up, and wait. And then um, wait for an image. Yeah. Uh, and when an image comes, you might have to wait quite a long time. I think it's, what, 10 or 15 days he's in the desert before he hears a voice, that's soul speaking. And what she says is, wait, wait. So he's frustrated, but then he starts talking to her. And then Salome and Elijah appear later. The first one, though, is he goes into the cave. Remember, you, you referenced that in your yes. message to me. That was his first image. He, he sees... Uh, uh, a cave, and he goes into it, and it's muddy. And there's a floating and head. And floating heads, and blood, and gory, horrible. So that, that's a great, there's a, there's such a, a, a wild man from the, uh, from the perspective of academia that studies the wildest stuff that's out there named Amon Hillman, and he talks about, he reads Greek six, seven hours a day. And when he encountered the Red Book, he was he, he he this passage he he pointed it out to me and said that is part of the Orphic tradition. He's he's making a direct reference to the Orphic tradition. Yeah. Hence, that's this curiosity of like, wait a second, where? Because I get into this weird space of when we talk about the mysteries. On the one hand, we're talking about these 
social um, communities that developed around an alternate state of experience, I imagine. I imagine somebody has a religious experience, they become somewhat touched by the prophetic vision, people congregate around it, and the mysteries traditions are born, saying that here is your, here's your process to um, stand beside yourself and reflect on an existence. That to me sounds like a process to connect with the mystery, but this, these Orphics were actively engaged in the practice and conceptualization and connection with the underworld, which we totally lack on a lot of levels today. Yeah. Well, for us, the underworld is the unconscious. Yeah. Um, Christianity was a kind of mystery religion at the beginning, you know, the, yeah. the, the community lived in catacombs or worshipped in catacombs, hidden places, uh, because they were being persecuted and so on. And then when it came out into the open, became an official religion of the Roman emperor, Empire under Constantine, um, it, um, it became um, more conventional and orthodox and took on the flavor of the, of the society in which it had entered into, namely the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. So the church was modeled on the emperor system. You know, you've got a guy at the top and then everything else follows underneath. So they set it up. So there's a pope and then there are archbishops and bishops and so on down the line. Um, and in the process of organizing itself and, and entering into the society and adapting to the society, they gained a lot. Um, in other words, they took over the world, the known world, but they lost a lot. They lost the mystery. And mystery has to remain very quiet, very private, and very secret. You know, the Eleusinian mysteries, which were practiced just outside of a Athens at Eleusis, and uh, Carl Carini wrote a wonderful book about it. Mm -hmm. um, they were practiced over centuries, and not once was the secret of the mysteries uh, revealed to anybody who was not a, a member of the cult. It was absolutely... They committed themselves to secrecy, to the secret. So keeping the secret, Jung writes about that occasionally too, keeping the secret is very important. If it's a precious secret, it isn't just being secretive and hiding your shadow and stuff like that. Keeping, a, keeping a secret that is that is the essence of who you are, of, of your most personal, your deepest identity, keep that to yourself or to a very few, your analysts maybe. Uh, you know, T.S. Eliot wrote that uh, every cat has three names. There's a name that everybody knows. There's a name that only a few people are intimately related to the cat. And there's a name that only the cat knows. And when you see the cat looking in the far distance, looking at the sunset, what it's doing is thinking about the name that only it knows. That's a secret. <laughs> that's, I love that. And that's, what, and that's why Jung hid the Red Book in his yeah. private office, in his drawer. He didn't publish it. He didn't publish it for maybe another reason, that it would make him look very non-Swiss and not like a conventional scientist. And he was worried yeah. about his persona and all of that. But this was another reason. You, if you spill it out all over the place... Uh, it loses its value. It becomes uh, it becomes a, a cliche. You know, if you use the same word too often, uh, you have to take it out. You know, you read through your text and you see you've used the same word twenty five times in two paragraphs. You have to start taking it out. It becomes commonplace. Has no value anymore. Mm -hmm. So overuse. Uh, so there are some things that only you or a very few people keep to yourself. And that's the mystery. The word mystery means secret. Look it up. The etymology means keeping the secret. So when you have these uh, deep experiences and you want to live with them and buy them, you do that in your own way privately. And Jung did it by writing, but he never referenced his red book in his other writings, except Memories, Dreams, Reflections, where he, chapter six, uh, Confrontation of the Unconscious, he talks about it a little bit, but he never quotes from it directly. He doesn't say, as I experienced, 
All right, let me tell you what I experienced in his writings. Never. Uh, only a few people ever saw the Red Book. Very few special people. Mary Louise von Franz and, and uh, Peter Baines and, you know, a couple of other people, his wife, Emma, of course, and Tony Wolfe. Uh, but it was very closely held. So I've got a question then, because at one point I was with this group. We were out in the hill country of Texas, about four or five of us studying the Red Book with a, an amazing analyst who's since died named Priscilla Murr. She was I know a lovely Priscilla human. Well. Oh, Priscilla. Yeah, so she we was, were, she was, uh, she was amazing. I had the uh, gift of her teaching me. And so I, 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 lo I love this story. We were out at this little ranch and in a small group studying the Red Book about three, uh, for about three days. And the guy who owned the ranch is also a Jungian analyst. And Priscilla trying to set him up for a, hey, you know, look at my students and what do you think about the Red Book? And as he's walking by, he goes, ah, it's just another religion. And then <laughs> and I, I remember this, you know, here I am, this like eager student, you know, this novice who's ready to learn. And I'm yeah. seeing the collision between don't be a practitioner. You see it in religious studies, right? Don't be a... Don't be a practitioner. Be have have distance. You know, don't don't be seduced by the tradition. So, what does that stir up for you? Um, when the Red Book was published, it was among Jungian analysts. There was quite a division between people who were celebrating it and people who thought it was a very bad idea. Um, here in Zurich, you know, it was I wouldn't say equally divided. I think most people were eager to read it and, and uh, see at least see what was there. Um, but the ones who were against it were afraid of a couple of things. One was that it would diminish Jung's reputation as a psychoanalyst and a scientist, and it would show that he was really a weird guy. <laughs> when I was a student, uh, there was a story going around that I heard a rumor that in the Red Book, you know, uh, and this was whispered in the Red Book, Jung claims that he's a reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. Well, it isn't so far from the truth. I mean, no, uh, it all. comes close, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, and Jung calls this the Liber Novus. Yeah. But this was his religious experience. And um, it was his New Testament. Liber Novus means the new book. Yeah. Um, I don't think he meant it to be a New Testament for other people in the sense that the Bible is a book for many people written by others than Jesus Christ himself, and many years after Christ's death. Um, but um, it certainly was Jung's deepest religious experience, at least until he um, had those visions in the 1940s when he was in the hospital, and he had these important visions of the, of the mystic marriage that he writes about in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. That was, a, I guess, a second stage, but it was different from the Red Book. The difference between active imagination and taking drugs, just to go back to that, and I think that's yeah. an important point, is that in active imagination, the ego, the I, who you are in your waking life, is a part of the drama. And it's not weakened or diminished by anything, by alcohol, drugs, anything. It is uh, fully empowered. And you can turn it off anytime you want to. So you, the ego is in control. Mm -hmm. But what the ego does is voluntarily, uh, drugs force this. And Jung once said that uh, drugs are a rape of the soul. It rapes it, rips it open. Uh, you don't have control over it. Um, in active imagination, you voluntarily open yourself to whatever will emerge, and you wait, and when it comes, you receive it. Step one is clear your mind and wait. Step two is whatever comes, receive it. Don't edit it. Don't say it's not good enough, it's not interesting, it's bullshit. Stay with it and follow it. And if it moves, follow it some more. And if you can engage it, eventually you will come upon figures, you will come upon a scene, uh, anybody who really actively perseveres in active imagination 
And I've worked now with a lot of people who do it as they work in analysis with me. Um, they encounter figures. They mm -hmm. encounter interesting personalities, images uh, that we then work with in analysis. They paint, they draw, they they make a part of their lives. They, uh, it's a part of their transformation process. Uh, but this opening and closing is under the direction of the ego. So I tell people, if you want to do active imagination, set aside 20 or 30 minutes, put on the alarm, and go in. First time, simply open yourself to the blank. Clear your mind. Not so easy. Clear your mind and wait. If thoughts intrude, put them aside. Just wait for an image to come. And when it comes, oh, there's a rabbit. You know, what's mm -hmm. that doing? Follow it. Mm -hmm. When it comes, engage it, no matter what it is. And continue working with that image, if an image comes, till the alarm goes off, then stop. And write down what you've experienced or not experienced. Day two, go back to where you left off on day one. And continue. Again, time, 30 minutes, that's enough. Um, and do this for 30 days consecutively. Whether anything happens or not, on some days something will, other days it won't. And after 30 days, you will have an inner space, an inner room or an inner landscape, a place you can go to continue your work at any time you want to. And you can take into that space your problems, your questions, your dreams. You can work further on your dreams. As Jung says, you can take, use active imagination to deepen your dreams, take them further, take them another step. But what you do in this first 30 days is create an inner space where that kind of work can be done. And it will always be there. It's constant. It doesn't change the way dreams are. You know, uh, you can't predict them. They're always different. There's always mm -hmm. something dreams. Active imagination, you can clear a space and go back to it and back to it and back to it as long as you want to. Um, and that has a kind of magical property to it. Yeah. No doubt. So Jung writes about this, that true imagination, as he calls it, he writes in, in his alchemy, true imagination creates. If God imagines something, he creates the world. It immediately materializes. If human beings imagine, with true imagination, Jung says, they create subtle bodies. Subtle bodies are neither real nor not real. They're imaginal, imaginal bodies, these subtle bodies. And if you work with these subtle bodies, and you paint them or you create a sculpture, as Jung did with many of his, uh, Bollingen, you know, his tower at Bollingen was an act of imagination. Um, synchronistic things happen around these objects. And he said, I can't say more about it. I just am hinting at it. But they do have the capacity, a true symbol has the capacity to constellate synchronicity. Okay, what is synchronicity? It's mm -hmm. the interaction between the psychical world and the material world from another location behind both of them that unites them and um, brings something into the world. It's an act of crea creation. Jung says uh, synchronicity is an act of creation. Uh, something into the world in two spots, in the psyche and in the material world. That's a synchronicity. And those synchronicities uh, have meaning. And he and Wolfgang Pauli worked a lot on this question mm -hmm, of meaning. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you discover the meaning in synchronicity? You don't make it up. It's delivered to you. And it comes from a depth of the unconscious that Jung called the collective unconscious or the archetype or the self. Um, and um, uh, so these, um, uh, what, what starts out as active imagination can move into true creation and the creation of symbols that have an uncanny way of delivering meaning or direction or vocation. Okay, let me take this thread. So um, 
I'm going to go a little bit into the underworld. What do you think all this talk of murder and child sacrifice is? You know, when you see that in the Red Book, what does your mind and experience connect with that? Because the one scene in particular, which is quite wild and yeah, anybody to hear about is a is a pretty intense scene. Yeah, well, Soul is sitting there with a dead child, and Young says, "What are you doing?" And he says, "Well, this child has been murdered." Um, and Young um, kind of feels sorry for the child, and then Soul says, "Eat the liver," and he says, "What?" I'm not going to do that. I, I, I would never do that. Eat the liver of this dead child. She <laughs> says, eat the liver. So he eats the liver. And what that does is, what he's doing is integrating the inferior function feeling, just to put it in theoretical terms. Because yeah. inferior function is the feeling function. And he writes a lot about how difficult it is for him to love. Hmm. Love is a big problem for you. When the word is mentioned, he runs for cover. It scares him. And he has to learn to integrate his feeling of love. And that's what that brings him. It brings him compassion for the suffering of the world at a level that is not just cognitive. Oh, the poor children in, hmm. in Ukraine. Aren't they suffering now? All those bombs mm-hmm. dropping on them. There's no water. Isn't that terrible? Uh, would you like another drink, honey? <laughs> That's the way we treat that. Uh, you get it on the news, and it lasts yeah. uh, 30 seconds, and then you're off to something Amnesia. else. Yeah. yeah. If you eat the liver, you don't go off to anything else. You're digesting it. You're eating it. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jung does throughout the Red Book. He's eating it. That's integration. That's what he means you have to do with symbols. You have to eat them. You have to take them into your body and make them you. They are this, part of you. This, this imagery is one that brings up the most detestable, disgusting, yeah. horrendous feeling, right? That, the feeling of having to do that is overwhelming. But then he has the Liverpool dream. Remember that? Yeah. Well, the liver is a very important yeah. symbol for you. Yeah. you know, so that's the seed of life. Mm-hmm. And uh, the liver of the child is, uh, you could say, the seed of eternal life. Or, um, but that scene, as, as grotesque and harsh as it is, and we played that scene in the, in the play, and uh, the man who played Jung in the play, uh, uh, Paul Brucci, uh, could barely say the lines when he did that, and he was retching. That's what the uh, audience saw. We had no idea he suffered like that. He is suffering. And uh, he didn't voluntarily ask for that scene that came to him. And it's delivered by soul. She's sitting there with a drape. He doesn't know who she is at first. And then she pulls back her her, um, hood and he sees, oh, that's soul, capital S, soul. Hmm. He's a figure in the Red Book. His soul brings him that. That's what soul brings you. Your inferior function, you know, grotesque things, but you have to digest them. And that's the the meaning of that scene. It's a very important scene. And I'm going to have to stop. I know. know. It's also very, very scary for a culture that seeks comfort at every step of the journey. Murray, hey, thank you so much for your time. Dr. Stein... It's a pleasure. Thank you. This is uh, so, so worthy of, uh, of a conversation, and I appreciate the container to dig into all this material. And Pleasure to speak with you, John. Take Thanks care. Thanks a lot, man. You Do too. my best to Rodney. Please, I too. will. Totally. Yes, okay. I will. Thanks, man.